Our first president, George Washington, was once famously described by a major general in the Continental Army, in the Continental Army with these words. He was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. His leadership was so important in those early days that our leaders commissioned the construction of the Washington Monument as a fitting tribute to our nation's greatest historical leader. The monument that was constructed is, is massively tall. It's 555 feet. It's in the shape of an obelisk or essentially like a, kind of like a church spire or a giant spear. It's designed to honor a person or a god. At the time of its construction, it was the tallest building in the world. From the government's National Park Service website, the Washington Monument towers above the city that bears his name, serving as an awe-inspiring reminder of George Washington's greatness. The monument, like the man, stands in no one's shadow. In today's passage, we see the construction of another massively tall, spear-like spire. In this case, the the narrow pole or the, the gallows is designed as an execution instrument to serve as an example for the whole city, indeed the whole empire, that you should never, ever rebel against Haman, the second in command in the empire. But in reality, the gigantic spear measures the height of Haman's hubris. And hubris is just exaggerated pride. This is a pillar of pride that serves as a monument to the ego of Haman. It typifies his hatred of God's people And his rebellion against God. But in our passage, the the ugliness of Haman's hatred is contrasted with the beauty that is the inner beauty of Esther. And her desire to be faithful to God and to his people. Our passage is Esther chapter 5. So here the glorious, beautiful, life-giving, inerrant, infallible word of Almighty God. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court. She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Lord, reveal our hearts this morning. But above all things, reveal the greatness of who you are to us so that we might trust in you all the more in awe of your kindness and your love and your greatness and your power and your glory. Lead us by your spirit to that end, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So in context, and by that I mean in the context of the flow of the story of the book of Esther, Esther 5 reveals that trusting in our true identity as God's people leads to selfless love and life. In contrast, giving in to the lie of idolatry leads to selfish pride and death. Trusting in our true identity as God's people leads to selfless love and life Giving in to the lie of idolatry leads to selfish pride and death. There are two main scenes that serve in stark contrast to one another. You can see them here in the text as easily as I. In verses 1 through 8, we'll look at the selfless love that's displayed by Esther in this case. And in verses 9 through 14, we'll look at selfish pride. That Haman is demonstrating. So we'll just begin with our first scene. Much like the old TV dramas where 
after each episode ended, you had to wait a whole nother week to find out the cliffhanger and what happened, right? The answer to the cliffhanger. Last Sunday, we ended with crescendoing music that was amped all the way up. And we cut to commercial, as it were, immediately after Esther's dramatic words. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. Now, the opening words of today's episode or today's chapter remind us that Esther has called for a a three-day fast on her behalf that is no food and no drink night or day. Esther herself joined in the fast before she dared to enter the court of the king. So in other words, the people and Esther, their representative, are both demonstrating or displaying their utter dependence upon God alone. Now, on the third day of the fast, Esther enters the inner court of the king's palace. She stands opposite the king's throne in his direct line of sight near the entrance to the palace. And what happens next will not only determine Esther's fate, but in her role as a, as a royal mediator, it will also determine the fate of the people of God. Now, if you've ever experienced a defining moment in a, in a, in a stressful situation where basically whatever happens next could go in one of two very different directions, then you might be able to taste the tension that Esther is feeling at this moment. Some of you know that, that recently our son Samuel was at Vanderbilt Hospital for a four-hour heart procedure. It went great, by the way. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, no need to add to the tension of that uh, moment, but... When Sam was in the operating room, many of you have probably experienced this, someone from the operating room, one of the attending nurses, will call and give you updates while the procedure is happening. And when the nurse would call my wife's cell phone, I'd be sitting across from her, and I would be scanning her face, just looking for any hint. Is this good news, or is this concerning news? Because I knew that depending on what the nurse was telling my wife, it's going to set us very clearly on one trajectory or another. I think Christy could just kind of feel the intensity of my gaze because when the nurse would call, she started giving me the thumbs up right away early in the conversation while she listened to the update that the nurse was giving her. But, but these kind of tense, defining moments that can lead you in one direction or another. It could be anything. You, you could be waiting on a callback from a, a very serious medical test. You're, you're waiting for that, that first cry of a newborn baby. Or maybe it's a judge's decision, and your life will be completely different one way or the other. It could be a response from a loan officer. It could be a call from a police officer. Why is he calling me? What does this mean? It could be a meeting with your boss or a cryptic 
text from a friend for that matter. But the tension of a potentially life-altering conversation creates a very distinct feeling. And the higher the stakes, the greater the tension. And the stakes could not be any higher for Queen Esther as she enters the sight line of the king. But in Esther 5, it's, it's almost as if the writer can't keep us in suspense for even a moment longer. Verse 2, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And all the people of God could exhale at that moment. When we look at verse 2 closely, and we hear that, that, that phrase, it seems to put the emphasis on how Esther prepared and then how she postured herself before the king. It says she won favor in his sight, as opposed to just kind of leaving everything up to the whimsical mood of this rather impetuous king. But I find Esther's faith-filled conduct instructive for us. One of the issues that's on the minds of many Christians with, with, with regularity is how we can most faithfully interact with our culture or how we should respond to certain governmental policies or what should our posture be towards certain authority figures in particular. Does God expect us to capitulate to the culture? Are we simply to comply in every circumstances to the government? Do we head for the hills? Or are we supposed to stand and fight? What is our calling in this culture as the people of God? Recall the words of our Savior spoken in, in this very context when he sent his disciples out into the world. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise or as shrewd as serpents and, and be as innocent as doves. It's a powerful passage addressing very real-life persecution and the people of God. So as we think about this idea, notice here that Esther acts with incredible wisdom and shrewdness. She knows the king and she knows Haman very well. So she prepares a banquet where there'll be plenty of wine flowing for both of them. And while they're dining, the king, either because he's a few glasses in already, uh, or he's just utterly infatuated with Esther, as we already know, he says again to her, what is your wish? And then he uses that, that frankly, hyperbolic phrase, uh, that the kings were wont to do to make themselves sound important. Ask me anything, up to half my kingdom, and I will give it to you. But let's be clear, there is zero chance Xerxes is planning on giving half of his kingdom to Queen Esther, no matter what she says. Right? 
But what is even more interesting is the way Esther responds. It seems like this would be the perfect moment. King's happy. He's asking. This would be the perfect moment to bring her request to him. But she doesn't. In fact, in in verse 7, Esther actually invites the king and Haman to his second banquet the next day. It just seems strange to us. Why would she do that? As we think it through, what this means is that by tomorrow, this will mean two banquets have been given by Esther and three promises have been made now to honor Esther's request. So, in fact, the way verse 8 actually reads, it makes it seem like the intended purpose of that second banquet is simply to confirm that the king will honor her request. In other words, the queen is making it virtually impossible for the king to go back on his word. But here, here the power of God is as subtle as it is unmistakable. And so is this interwoven irony here, if we have eyes to see it. Think about what's happening, and I kind of picture the Father and the Son in heaven just kind of watching this play out as they're directing little powerless Hadassah. And I think they're just kind of laughing to each other and fist bumping. Probably easiest for Jesus, I guess. There. But the reason that they're enjoying this so much, if you think about it, is because little powerless Hadassah is deftly directing the decisions of the most powerful man on earth. Esther is, is subtly steering the citadel that is the power seat of the fortress of the capital city, of the most dominant nation on earth. In this impenetrable location, God has just effortlessly placed a little Jewish girl there to influence the edict that has been issued. One of God's covenant people is directing what happens. And this this activity will eventually lead to the deliverance of God's people from certain death. So here, Esther is acting with faith-dependent wisdom because she doesn't know what God is going to do. God knows what God is going to do, but Esther is just taking a step in obedience. It's such a powerful and beautiful thing for her to walk forward in faith-dependent wisdom given by God, who loves to give wisdom, by the way. He gives it generously to his people without reproach. In other words, he doesn't castigate you for the reason that you need wisdom. He says, by all means, ask me, and I will generously give it to you. So, are there any difficult decisions or Situations that you're facing at the moment that require discernment? Let me encourage you not to skip over the most important thing you need to do. Ask ask God to give you wisdom and discernment. Why would we not start with the only being that knows everything and loves his people beyond measure? 
The father of heavenly lights loves to just shower his people with every good and perfect gift from above, which includes his incomparable wisdom. And here Esther is demonstrating wisdom. But recall that Jesus said we are to act as wise as serpents and as innocently as doves. So Esther is demonstrating wisdom. Is she also acting innocently? Remember chapter 4. Mordecai has preached the gospel of the Old Testament to Esther, reminding her that even if she keeps silent, her, her family line is likely to perish. But here's the gospel in the Old Testament. Deliverance will come from another place for the people of God. God will not ultimately forsake his people. This is a promise rooted in God's call of Abraham to make and to bless a nation through him, namely the beloved covenant people of God. So Esther responds to this Old Testament gospel proclamation by trusting in the promise God made to his people. In other words, she begins to trust in her true identity in God as a covenant member of his people. From this moment on, it changes everything. Esther is now referred to almost always as Queen Esther in the rest of the book. She no longer acts like a creature of the empire, but with a a meekness and a dignity of royalty, a quiet confidence. We might even say a holiness befitting the covenant people of God. Think about how striking that is. Esther could have tried to influence the king by reverting back to some of the other ways she's been able to win his favor. She could have just counted on her external physical attractiveness and the way the king loved, the way she sensuously engaged him. She could have tried to manipulate the king the way Samson's wives tried to manipulate him to to draw out the truth that they wanted to hear from him. She could have just gotten these guys drunk and then maybe tried to get her hands on the signet ring somehow. Maybe she could have talked to Haytack and tried to have him go in there and talk to one of the king's advisor and see if someone would be willing to out Haman. My point is, whatever the case, she didn't attempt anything deceptive. Nothing. Rather, as a woman trusting in her God-given identity as a member of the household of faith, Esther exercised her faith. She trusted in the God of her people and in her identity as his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7. Esther simply fasted. She dressed in her royal robes, which is consistently consistent with the dignity of the role to which she had been named. And then she simply stood in the presence of the king and trusted God, clothed not seductively, but in weakness and in royalty. There is a certain innocence to the way Esther presents herself here. Esther's response to Mordecai preaching the Old Testament gospel to her was to 
entrust her life to God. In context, she trusted in her identity as one of God's beloved people, and she resolved to live in light of that truth. It's elegantly simple. It's internally beautiful. We know Esther was externally beautiful, but here is a demonstration of her inner beauty. And it is exceedingly powerful. The fruit of her conviction ultimately was that she died to herself. Through Esther's willingness to selflessly give up her life as an act of love toward others, God greatly blessed many, many, many people by sparing the life of his people. I wonder what perhaps even small opportunity you might have this week to, in a difficult situation or in an unclear situation, avoid deception. Avoid the temptation towards manipulating the circumstances and simply, dependently, meekly, and powerfully entrust the circumstances of your life to God. One of the best ways to do this, because when we face a situation and we're not sure about the outcome, or we're not sure if we're proceeding in what we might call a biblical way, one of our tendencies at times can be to not continue with all of our spiritual habits. For example, we might start to remove ourselves from growth group. We may not read God's word, or we may avoid certain passages that we don't think will be consistent with what we're hoping will happen in this particular situation. Or you might even avoid some of your friends or brothers and sisters in Christ because you don't think what you want to do will go without confrontation from them. Right? So my encouragement to us is to maintain our spiritual habits. That is, continue to come to church, continue to be in growth group, continue to engage with the Word of God, continue to pray and be led by the Spirit, continue in, to engage in community with other brothers and sisters, and that just trust that God will provide wisdom to you through those very ordinary and necessary means of grace. What might God do in you and potentially through you if you do that. Or maybe you're in a situation where you've been agonizing about what to do. But perhaps the answer is clearer than you realize. Is it possible that you could just innocently trust in your God-given identity as God's beloved child, act in obedience to God's word, knowing that God will care for you, and then prayerfully walk with him through whatever happens next? Or perhaps God is calling you to shrewd and wise action. In the economy of the kingdom of God, that could mean something as simple as offering a cup of cold water to someone who is opposing you. Simple, striking. Or it could mean something harder like telling the truth in love 
to one of your friends or family. Or it could mean something messier, like being willing to walk with someone through a very difficult trial. Or it could mean something bolder, like like stating your biblical convictions in public or at work, or possibly even testifying to your hope in Jesus Christ. But, But what if you're just paralyzed by fear? Or uncertainty? Or the inconsistency of your actions? Sometimes I feel bold in sharing my faith. Sometimes I'm scared to death to talk to my neighbor who I know who lives across the street. If, if, if you find yourself in a paralyzed place for whatever the reason, recall that there was a royal figure far greater than Esther who in utter weakness acted in faith by presenting his perfect life and entrusting his expiring body to God on Calvary's cross. This far greater royal figure gave up his life not just as an example of faith, but to redeem us from our lack of faith, to redeem us from our sinful guilt. He gave his life to redeem us from the pit of our shame to lift lift us out of that pit, to clear the clouds of our spiritual confusion or to to pull us from the the periphery of life into, into fellowship with him and to overcome our spiritual paralysis by creating in us a joyful zeal to do good. The king's selfless sacrifice for us in love frees us to love others selflessly and sacrificially for their good and ultimately for God's glory and honor. The regal weakness of Jesus was on full display when for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God clothed in the beauty and splendor and dignity of the royal robes of his purity. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. Praise God that like Esther, Jesus was willing to be used by God to deliver his people from death. And praise God that Jesus, like Mordecai, was willing to suffer outside the gate in order to give us abundant life. The liberating truth of the gospel is what frees us to live without fear in this world and to live as as shrewd as serpents and as beautifully innocent as doves, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. Haman went out that day, verse 9, joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, 
that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Haman is just the worst. (laughs) But I think that's the point. I think we are supposed to look at him and say, I hate everything about the way this guy acts. He's he's petulant and pouty to the point of seeming almost almost comically childish. I mean, you can practically hear him just whistling as he walks away from this first banquet, just beaming because of his time together with the king and the queen. Never dawned on Haman that he might be a third wheel there. He went out that day joyful and glad of heart. That is, until he sees his arch nemesis, Mordecai. When Haman sees Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled, he was filled with rage. If if Haman was a cartoon character, right about now, his his face would be turning beet red and and smoke would be coming out of his ears and he'd, he'd start jumping up and down, just stomping his feet in anger. So he tries to console himself, he tries to calm down, gathers his wife and his friends, and he starts bragging about everything he has. He starts bragging about all that he has done. And he just kind of pridefully drones on and on like a pathetic drunk guy at the end of a bar. Right? Oh, I'm so rich. I've been a father many times over. I'm successful. I mean, I've been promoted more times than I can count. I have more important position than all the king's officials. I went to a private party with the king and queen. I mean, if you're sitting there, you're like, dude, you're killing me. I mean, I have everything, verses 11 and 12. Yet none of my great achievements means anything to me so long as I have to walk by. Mordecai the Jew every single day, verse 13. At this point, are we supposed to shake our heads? Take a swing at Haman? Laugh out loud? I mean, it's, 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 it's a silly level of self-congratulation. And his, his pouting is just beyond petty. Frankly, I think we could dismiss Haman. Just just dismiss him as as cartoonishly self-referenced if it weren't for the fact that he's actually extremely dangerous. 
Verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And this idea pleased Haman. In addition to his other flaws, Haman is easily persuadable. All you have to do is appeal to his idolatrous pride or hatred, and you can, you can easily guide him in any direction. But the gallows proposed is so over-the-top, unnecessarily tall, that it appeals to and typifies Haman's pride and his hatred. Because Haman can now show, this is what happens if you offend me. I I just kind of picture him almost ghoulishly laughing with everyone else kind of toasting him as he gives permission to have the gallows built. For the record, Haman's friends did not serve him well here. That, That is abundantly clear. Think about it with me. Their desire to simply affirm his feelings actually led them to further facilitate evil. One of them should have had the courage to get up in Haman's face and at least lovingly confront the guy, to tell him, your behavior is not just wrong, It's destructive. Not only were his actions wreaking havoc in the kingdom, he was so filled with hatred, he was actually heading down a path towards self-destruction. Boy, those words and this counsel resonates tremendously when we think about our day and age. We actually have people who are so desiring to affirm people's feelings that they would rather let them do evil that will destroy them than actually tell them the truth because they don't want to risk offending them. That's not just cowardice. That's actually hatred. Because someone who is defying, that is rebelling against God, will ultimately be destroyed. It's tragic. It happened in the book of Esther, and it's happening today, every single day. But in our story, Haman is is clearly the villain. He is he's enemy number one of the people of God. His treachery and audacity are just the stuff of legend. I mean, in this story, we are supposed to loathe him. I mean, he is acting as an agent of Satan, seeking to utterly destroy the people of God. But the question I want to ask this morning is, what lesson can we learn from the exaggerated immorality of Haman the Agagite. Perhaps the most striking lesson to consider here is where unchecked 
idolatry actually leads. Recall our focus. Trusting in our true identity as God's people leads leads to selfless love and life. But giving into the lie of idolatry leads to selfish pride and ultimately death. Young people, one of the most important questions you can ask about your thought process and your decision making is where will this decision lead? To define idolatry very simply, anything we desire more than God, fear more than God, or trust more than God is an idol in our life. Anything, anything we desire more than God, fear more than God, or trust more than God is an idol for us. Haman's idol of reputation, his desire to be praised in public is on full display in our passage. From his listing of his achievements to his anger over Mordecai's refusal to honor him and his refusal to fear him. Here is what is horrifying to consider. Every vice we see described in Haman's life exists at least in seed form in our own hearts. Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. I would add that the the process for a factory to produce products generally happens in stages. But the assembly line of the heart factory is operational 24-7. It often doesn't take much for the lie of idolatry to set the idol-making assembly line in motion. But the truth about idols is that at best, at very best, they overpromise and underdeliver. More accurately, they are obsession inflamers. Idols are joy stealers. And ultimately, idols are soul killers. They just mask around as the as the fun-loving cool kids of the spiritual neighborhood. They tell you, you need them, or you'd be so much happier if you were friends with us, or that living without them will, will just make your life miserable. But every single one of those promises is a lie from the pit of hell. Idols can't deliver on any of their hollow boasts, which is why God mocks idols mercilessly in the Old Testament. The essential lie of idolatry is that you need something other than God to ultimately be satisfied. If you're really sophisticated, you might say that I do want God. I just want this other thing along with it. Also, idolatry. Or what the Old Testament called syncretism. And God will not share his glory with another. Ever. And that's for our good. The key, the key to defeating this lie, that lie being that you need something other than God or something along with God to ultimately be satisfied. Don't brush this off too easily. I need God alone and the health of my kids, and I'll be happy. I trust in God alone. If I get this job, then 
I'll have peace and won't stay up all night worrying about things financially. God is the strength and the portion of my heart. If I only had the relationship that I long for, then I would be happy. We all, we all, we all experience this. But the key to defeating the lie that anything other than God can ultimately satisfy you is to proactively live out the first part of our main point. That is, we need to trust in our identity as God's people, thinking about our union with Christ and his redeeming work on our behalf helps us to increasingly see Jesus as more satisfying than anything else. Our identity in God as his people matters. It matters that God, the one and only true and living God, is our God. It matters that this God is our Father. It matters that he loves us. It matters that he purchased our lives with the blood of his son. It matters that he redeemed us and brought us into fellowship with his spirit. It matters that he is our light and our life and our salvation. It matters that he justified us and sanctified us and that one day he will glorify us. It matters that he saved us, that he's sustaining us, and that he will preserve us to the very end. That matters. It matters that in faith we trusted in Christ and we are in union with him, so now we are a member of the people of God. That identity, that truth matters, and it changes everything for us. So we need to trust in that identity as God's people. Further, remember the simplicity of what I encourage us to do earlier with respect to prayer and wisdom. If you're struggling with sin, begin by asking the Spirit to inflame your love for Jesus. That's the starting place. Because sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. So if you want to defeat sin long term, increase your love for Jesus. Who can do that? God's spirit can do that through the word. Further, in addition to praying and asking God to inflame your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, ask your brothers and sisters in Christ, ask those you are in fellowship with, those in your growth group, to do the opposite of what Haman's friends did. You need to tell them, love me enough to tell me the truth. Love me enough to tell me what I need to know so I don't destroy myself. Love me the way Jesus loves me, by showing me what's right and true and good. The reason that's important is because it's ultimately a matter of life and death. I'm not sure if you ever thought of your growth group as something that's preventing you from destroying yourself, but it is, at the very least, a matter of spiritual life and death. 
Why? Because that's where idolatry leads. Haman's life shows us this. Spoiler alert, he dies physically too. Not just spiritually. Instead of ever increasing satisfaction in God, idolatry leads to ever increasing selfishness and ultimately to death. Pursuing idolatry is a spiritual death march. So if the seeds of idolatry reside in all of our hearts and if some of those seeds have sprouted and if we know, if we know anything, that God hates idolatry, see the entire Old Testament as a frame of reference. What do we do? Where does hope come from for idolaters like you? And like me, where do we turn for hope? How about 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11? Hear the truth. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Can't get any clearer than that. Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God And such were some of you, Paul says. But brothers and sisters, this is when we were Hamanites. This is our old identity. This is who we, the tense is crucial, were. This is who we were. But you were washed. But you were washed, you were sanctified. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is your new identity. You are a beloved child of God who has been saved by God. That is who we are, and that changes everything for us. So rest in that hope. Haman's impaling pole was a a wooden stake on which the offender would be pierced, and his body would hang there to, to just publicly endure guilt and shame. For we know that cursed is anyone hanged on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. But Haman's action was not just an example of his hatred toward Mordecai or even his hatred toward God's people. It was a dramatic display of his hatred toward God. The pole was 75 feet tall. Frame of reference, that's, that's taller than our church steeple. That's a few feet taller than that gigantic tree that's, that's, that's in our front court area right there. Can you imagine pulling into church and seeing someone's body being made an example, pierced and hanging on a pole taller than our church steeple? This is ridiculously tall. Why is that the case? Haman is acting as a seed of the serpent, wanting Mordecai's body to hang on this pole, pierced probably through his back, facing upward, as if to hold it up to God. 
as high as they can make it and say, do you see this? This is how much I hate your people. God, this is how much I hate you. Yet even the brutality of attempting to hang Mordecai, the righteous Jew, on a wooden stake as a monument to his hatred, even this evil act causes us to think of a far more righteous Jew who was also hanged on a wooden stake. But this man declared, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. God's own son was publicly executed for all to see, not as a monument to hatred, but as a monument to God's everlasting love. Three days later, this monument became a living, breathing testimony of the resurrection power of unstoppable love. That's why 2,000 years later, we can say with Paul, we want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that's what which depends on faith, that we might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we might attain the resurrection from the dead. Therefore, may we, as the people of God, trust in our true identity as God's people, leading to to selfless love and to life everlasting. And may we, by grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, never, ever give in to the lie of idolatry that leads to selfish pride and ultimately to eternal death. In order to do that, may we acknowledge Jesus as first in the war against sin. First in the peace that can only come from him. And may we ever acknowledge Jesus as first in the hearts of his people. Glory be to the Father and to his beloved Son and to the most Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we love your word. Although it kind of stings. But it's life-giving. And so I pray that that our hearts now, as as we think about these, these differing trajectories, I pray that you would remind us that all of us, all of us were on a trajectory toward hell. Therefore, you were against us, as it were. But because of your intervening grace and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are now on a trajectory towards heavenly glory. And this we know, our God, you, Father, are now for us. So cause our hearts to overflow with thankfulness and in freedom and in joy. Help us to praise your name We ask in Jesus' name, amen.